It's the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, another episode rolling out. I'm Ray Koob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And another year on the calendar page is turned. And one of the things that we're always amazed about is the list of albums that are turning 50 in a new year. I know we keep looking at this 50 year list every year and throughout the entire list. We're like, oh, fuck, I forgot about that one. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> fucking a God. This episode's going to be so long. Fuck. This is such a good list. Long is OK as long as it's good. And this one's going to be good. Now, let's start where we started this year when it comes to, you know, looking at these records that came out in 1974. Uh, we went to grunge.com. We saw an article there by S. Flanagan and started there because we figured it was a good beginning point on anything going on uh, with this uh, discussion on the podcast, which is always is brought to you by our friends at Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hatboro, coming round to their 10th and our 5th anniversary. Uh, February 10th at the brewery, the Crooked Eye Band will be the anchor for a 5 and 10 celebration. Mainly, it's a celebration of Crooked Eye. And we're going to be there, too, recording stuff for an upcoming celebration on the podcast of this uh, 5 and 10 celebration. Pretty cool, man. Well, this discussion starts with an album that was very big for me from when it first came out. I already knew about Joni Mitchell and a lot of her music when Court and Spark was released 50 years ago, just the other day, as we're recording this episode. I've listened to a couple of tunes on this album. I like Joni Mitchell a lot. I'm not as uh, into her or knowledgeable about her as you are, but boy, what a voice. And holy cow, does she write some incredible songs. And she crossed over to the mainstream pop even uh, with some of the songs on the album. You Turn Me On, I'm a Radio. You know, radio was playing that one like crazy. Of course, she was still a darling of the AOR underground. So they went off on tracks like Raised on Robbery or Help Me, which really shows her amazing vocal range. Such a beautiful song. And if that wasn't enough, Free Man in Paris, her story of being in Paris with David Geffen, who was behind the star maker machinery that she's singing about. An immediate commercial and critical success, her biggest album to date, going to number two in the U.S. and number one in her native Canada. Good place to start this episode talking about Joni Mitchell, or anytime we start an episode, it's good to talk about Joni. But right after her album came out in 74, a woman who's been in the spotlight lately, hit with one of her biggest albums, her 13th in 1974, Dolly Parton's Jolene. Jolene and I Will Always Love You are the two songs that I remember the most from this record. I remember seeing Dolly Parton on TV. She was just always the coolest person and she seemed so real and so genuine and nice and there was not a thing that was fake about her. She was as real as it gets and I think that real genuine sweetness and kindness really came through. I've heard so many bands and musicians cover Jolene and I Will Always Love You and such a great song and it's always interesting to hear how other people are inspired by these songs. Steely Dan's Pretzel Logic lands, and it really propels them to the front of this kind of funky American progressive movement that's happening, right? Jazzy, but definitely a rock band in the offing. 
I wasn't listening to as much rock radio at that time, some, but not as much. But I specifically remember Ricky Don't Lose That Number from Top 40 Radio at that time. There was a cool vibe about them as a little kid. There just seemed something very cool, which now is called Yacht Rock. As much as Ricky Don't Lose That Number put them on every radio station in America, it was still the cool D-tracks like any major dude that started to cultivate that Steely Dan following. And the band started to change. Walter and Donald stuck together. But the other guys would start to fall out. And Jim Gordon, contributing the drums on that big hit, track two, Ricky Don't Lose That Number. Part of the crew that made it a really great album. Marcus, you know, even in 1974, if a band put out a debut album and a member left right away and things didn't click, a lot of times that was it for a band. But that's not what happened to Rush. No, that band really was hell-bent on persevering. And they were off to a great start. That first album has some outstanding songs. Working Man is a piece of art. the one that sets them on the path to everything that follows. Apostrophe was Frank Zappa's sixth album as a solo act, even though he'd had plenty of albums with the Mothers of Invention, right? I was later to Frank Zappa. The early 80s is when I got into him. But not only do I remember Yellow Snow, I remember Cosmic Debris. That song title was really cool to a teenage me. The title track, Apostrophe, like you mentioned, and then the funniest title to me on the album, St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast. And anybody who made <laughs> a song like that, I am going to listen to that song. Yes, indeed. Here we are. At St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast, where I stole the margarine and wheeled on the bingo cards and blew up the latrine. I saw a handsome parish lady her entrance like a queen why she was totally chenille and her old man and his sense of humor throughout the entire album and throughout his entire discography is exceptional and poignant and even relevant today too end of march earth wind and fire released their fifth album open our eyes they were on a star trajectory, and this album helps them to keep it real. This album was recorded up in Nederland, Colorado at the famous Caribou Ranch, which is also where another album that was released this year came out. Earth, Wind & Fire is one of those bands that I think has such a huge, important piece in history, as they're that one band that I think everybody liked in the 70s they're that one band that no matter who you were everybody was into earth wind and fire they just had that ultimate crossover cool vibe to them yeah you could always find something on their albums that appealed to you no matter which slice of life you enjoyed from them earth wind or fire absolutely and the uniting of earth wind and fire was pretty special and their songs are pretty damn awesome i would recommend if you're not that familiar with them to check some of their albums out including this one open our eyes 1974 was the second helping from leonard skinner their second album filled with great tracks of course the landmark sweet home alabama 
but also fan faves like Don't Ask No Questions or Working for MCA, the legendary cult classic, The Ballad of Curtis Lowe. Don't forget, Call Me The Breeze. This How could album, we, right? <laughs> I know. This album is absolutely incredible. One of the many things that really stands out about this band is you feel their songs. You feel their lyrics. You feel their music. The way Ronnie sang, he put his complete heart and soul of who he was into every single song. I like them more and more. The more I listen to them, the older I get. Bobby Keys among the horn players on sax, and the great Mary Clayton on backup vocals. Whew. David Bowie hits twice in 1974, the studio album Diamond Dogs, and recorded at the Tower Theater in Philadelphia, David Live. Diamond Dogs came out in May, and I was right on that. I got from the RCA Record Club, Marcus, for like a dime. And then David Live, all my friends talking about it all year, getting that album and listening to that. It was like being there for a kid who was too young to go to concerts, just barely too young. I bought that album from Wax Tracks Records in Denver, Colorado in like 78, 79. I had just started playing Dungeons and Dragons and I loved the album cover and I'd already had Changes 1 from David Bowie and Diamond Dogs is such a great song that I wanted to hear the rest of the album in 1984 still wallops me every time I hear it. I still like Rock and Roll With Me, I remember hearing that one as a younger kid and being impressed with it. One of the many killer personalities of David Bowie. And on the live album, those versions are the ones that most people from Philadelphia know because that's ingrained in our DNA, that album. An incredible year for Bowie, two years after it was all over for him when he put Ziggy on the shelf. There he is, kicking ass and taking names again. Well, you mentioned Caribou Studios. Elton John liked it so much that he went there. I think he went a couple times and recorded an album that he called Caribou, one of the favorite additions to my collection at that stage of life. Kind of started that whole phase of uh, Destination Recording along with Montserrat, right? Yeah, he was big into the Destination Recordings, and I'll tell you what, some great songs came out of those Destinations. And how about bitch and don't let the sun go down on me. Kind of like the dichotomy of different sounds you get from Elton John and Bernie Taupin on this amazing album. The Elton John Band with Chester Thompson on organ. Is that right? And that's the Tower of Power Horns who went up to the elevations to record this stuff too. I'm looking at the full lineup and I see Clyde King who was on that second helping record with Skinner. She's in here. Dusty Springfield, Bruce Johnson, who sang backups with the Beach Boys, and Carl Wilson from the Beach Boys. And don't forget, Tony, Tony Tennille. 
And Daryl Dragon, too. Did I forget the captain? He did. Please say it's not so. Captain, Captain Daryl. A great album, and I bet a great winter for skiing up there in Colorado. And you were just mere miles away. Just mere miles. Also, the culmination, I guess you'd say the public love fest that defined the relationship between Bob Dylan and the band before the flood, live, the way they did it, man. Woo! Music amazing. All the different places that they recorded previously unheralded. They took the best stuff, didn't apologize for doing it, and put it all together on Before the Flood. An amazing album from 1974. We're getting there, man. We're getting there. I know. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that album. Holy shit. I'm looking at these songs in order, and I'm like, fuck. Dude, you're not lying. They are really great versions, too. You're going to find that. Oh, yeah. You know what's next on our hit parade from 1974. Albums turning 50. Is it possible that Stevie Wonder's fulfilling this first finale is turning 50, Marcus? Absolutely, this album is turning 50. And what an album it is. You mean the reggae woman is 50? It is a 50-year-old song. Yeah, this album is so important because a year before he released Inner Visions and two years after this album, Songs in the Key of Life came out. This album is really a bridge to Songs in the Key of Life from Inner Visions and gives you a feel for what direction Stevie Wonder is taking his journey up to and including Michael Cimbello and Reggie McBride being in the studio. Yes, he got the great James Jamerson in on this too, and sneaky Pete Kleinel. The backing vocals from the Jackson 5, Minnie Ripperton, a young Denise Williams, and yes, that Paul Anka, all on a Stevie Wonder album, giving performances that kind of show him shifting, like you said, and with Cimbello and Reggie already in the mix and some other people, they kind of form the hub of that band that becomes Songs in the Key of Life. Maybe the greatest album of the era period. Without a doubt. You know, the Reverend Al Green is one of the funkiest humans ever. Ever. Okay, can we establish that here on the podcast? Because I don't think I've ever said that. Established. I offer as Exhibit A, Al Green Explores Your Mind. Released in October 74, including Take Me to the River. Drop me in the water, Marcus. I'd like to dedicate this song to little Junior Park. A cousin of mine that's going on, but we'd like to kind of carry on in his name. I sang. Cigarette, 
such a great song and what the talking heads did with it just a few years later, pretty magical as well. But alternative music was very heavily influenced by soul and R and B. And you can hear it in the transition between those two songs. The great Al Green on the imbalance history of rock and roll. Marcus, there's two bands that we need to talk about who put out two albums in 1974. The first is the debut from KISS, released February 18th. Do I have to run it all down? Everybody knows they showed they had it going on right from the beginning with Strutter and Firehouse and Cold Gin Time Again, motherfuckers, Deuce and Black Diamond. These are the songs that are part of the plan, the master plan that continues to unfold, right? It would have been absolutely wild to see these cats in their makeup playing these songs in small clubs around the U.S. Oh. I guarantee you it would have been wild as hell. Bars in Brooklyn, and super right? fun, yep. Especially those Brooklyn shows where they really built their... Uh, following they kept busy in 74 one thing leads to another october 22nd hotter than hell ladies and gentlemen the greatest loudest loudest and motherfuckers in the land hotter mm -hmm. than hell from kiss do you think they were the loudest motherfuckers in the land at that time no that's not what he said i just kind of threw that in there no the Ooh. loudest motherfuckers in the land at that time were either the who or deep purple but a really great second record from Kiss. A one-two punch to enter themselves into the fiasco of rock and roll in 1974. Another band that was also making their way through what we always talk about, the artist development process. Queen, with their second album, really starts to make their way and finding their way. Ironically, they would fight with their record company over the length of Bohemian Rhapsody, if, at least they, if the movie is to be believed, right? The movie of the same name. Mm -hmm. But you know, on this album, they've got a six and a half minute song, and a six minute song, and a lot of four minute long, like longer songs. And I can't believe it was ever really a big thing considering how music would develop and change and long form music would become part of rock. But they were trying to establish themselves with their second album and it wasn't going great. I'll just say that. They were making fans everywhere they went, but they weren't blowing up yet. But that changed later in 1974. One of the albums, it was one of those party albums in your senior year in high school. Well, this was definitely in there for me. Their album, Sheer Heart Attack Lands. And oh my God, they just explode. She keeps them always shunned in a pretty cabinet. She says, just like Marie Antoinette, a building a remedy for Chris Job and Kennedy. And at a time of invitation, you can't take I remember hearing these guys on the radio at about the time this album came out. Killer you Queen. You couldn't avoid it. <laughs> I know. They were everywhere. And then a few years later, I heard Stone Cold Crazy for the first time and was blown away. And I love Metallica's cover of it. They did it a solid, but Stone Cold Crazy is uh -huh. my favorite song on this album. The whole album is just great. Really uh, throw themselves at the world and say, hey, we're here. Bow, Bow to, to the, the queen. queen. For side two, you start out with In the Lap of the Gods, into that Stone Cold Crazy, right? You also have Bring Back That Bad Leroy Brown. Good stuff. Two albums from Queen, two albums from Kiss, a hell of a year in 1974, even if that was all we got, right? Yeah. But it good. wasn't. It wasn't even close. And before we get to the end of the year, according to this grunge article, right? The last of Peter Gabriel in Genesis. The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Oh my God, I can't even tell you how much this album means to me musically and, you know, just in my discovery of progressive rock in the 70s.
away at Headley Grange for three months working on songs. Also unfolding was Gabriel's involvement in the band. He would leave after that and go solo. In fact, there's an episode of The Imbalance History about the next four albums in Peter Gabriel's life that you can find wherever you get your podcast, the uh, solo cycle that started his career. It was their epic, Marcus, and it was the last album in Grunge.com's article about the albums turning 50. I'm parched. I don't know about you, but we've been talking for a while about all these great albums, and I I need a a pint from Crooked Eye, and then we'll come back and get into uh, a list that we put together of the ones they failed to mention, and we take exception with a few of them, right? Yes, we do. Back with more on The Imbalance History next. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. It's finally here, Marcus. It's the 10th anniversary of Crook and I Brewery happening February 10th at the Crook and I Brewery location uh, right there at York and Montgomery and Hapro. The Crook and I band's going to be on stage. All the people that have been part of Crook and I's first 10 years making a plan to be there for the party, and that includes us. It's going to be a fun night of rock and roll. There are going to be some tasty beers. There's going to be food there. Lots of toasts like raised the so, yeah, it'll oh, be a fun yeah. night of rock and roll. And come and be part of the party and part of the podcast episode. We'll be recording that night. If you find us, tap us on the shoulder and tell us what you like about the imbalanced history of rock and roll. So we hope to see you there at the big party to celebrate five and ten. Five for us and ten for Crooked Eye Brewery. Thanks to Paul and Paul and Jeff and everyone there that makes it such a fun place. Thank you, everybody. We love you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's a celebration of ten years of Crooked Eye in the heart of Hapro since 2014. Pouring the cure for what ails you and sponsoring us here on The Imbalance History. You know what a great thing about this list? We can start it wherever we want, and that means we can come back from the break with one of the greatest intros in rock and roll ever. The intro from Lou Reed's Rock and Roll Animal. Oh, man. That album is so damn good. That album had a huge impact on a young me. Me too. Because he was so different than everybody else and he just really shook shit up and it you know made me really start digging into the velvet underground and finding out more about some of these other bands that had been out there and so you know that was part of that journey for me and thank you lou reed for doing what you did because 
it inspired me to learn a lot. And that album is fantastic. I mean, seriously, that live version of Sweet Jane with the big intro, huge. Let me tell you, I think that had as much to do with people's introduction to Lou and people heard that that was a Velvet song. So I think a lot of times in people's mind, uh, at first, it was associated that it was a live Velvet's version, but that's how Lou established the pace for himself moving forward. Also, uh, the version of White Light, White Heat on there, mm-hmm. and Rock and Roll. Great songs mm-hmm. done live with a great audience. And I got to say something. I, I figured out a connection to a couple albums that are in this part of the episode. On guitar, on the live parts, for real, not dubbed later, were Steve Hunter and Dick Wagner. Now, we know that they've been legendary guys. They played together and been linked together in sessions for forever, including the next album, which is Get Your Wings from Aerosmith, where they are the guitar tandem on Train Kept a Rolling. That was them? Yeah. Now, the other thing about Get Your Wings is it started the partnership with Jack Douglas, which continued all the way through, right? Pretty much with uh, very little interruption this album also helped the fan base to grow beyond boston the maniacs who birthed aerosmith got to finally share them with the world and there were so many millions of us out there hungry for a band just like these guys This album, like many of the albums at this time, loaded with great songs. The cover of Train Kept a Rolling, fantastic. But you have Seasons of Wither, Same Old Song and Dance, Lord of the Thighs. And it's just such dirty rock and roll. And this band deserves to be in the conversation for greatest American bands of all time. They're a band who has persevered. They're a band who struggled, failed, fell apart got back together, pulled it together, recovered, and continually put out great songs. Hey, the Eagles had a pretty good year in 1974. They released On the Border. It kind of broke them out of the countryside that they kind of had spent more time on in the first couple records, even while playing to that a little bit and accentuating their pop presence on songs like Best of My Love. I like some of the Eagles songs. I've never been a huge Eagles person. I think it's more their attitude and the energy that they've given off is not vibed with my energy, but Best of My Love, a great song. I will always sing it when it comes on the radio or whenever I hear it. Already gone. You have songs like On the Border. You have James Dean, their Tom Waits song. They do Old 55, which they really do nicely. So, Hey, you know what else happened in 1974? What? The debut album from Bad Company hit. After getting the call from Led Zeppelin, who signed them to their swan song label, telling them to get to Headley Grange because John Paul Jones had just quit in the middle of what would be the physical graffiti sessions, they were pressed into service to get there and start recording their debut album for the label. And thank God they were pressed to go because they made such an amazing debut that has stood the test of time and then, of course, continue to make really great albums through the years. But there at the beginning, the songs, the voice of Paul Rogers. Oh, man. Can't get enough and rock steady, ready for love and don't let me down. Four amazing songs all in a row. And then you flip the record over and Bad Company starts side two. And you've got The Way I Choose, Moving On, and Siegel. And seriously, you feel the chemistry of this band throughout the entire album and Paul Rogers' voice is so beautiful. Seagull, you fly across the horizon 
And a young Ron Nevison is in the middle of that, stirring up some good trouble. I want to talk to you, Marcus, about a band called 10CC. A much younger me got caught up in them by a couple songs on the radio, mainly Wall Street Shuffle, or The Wall Street Shuffle, as it's officially titled, on their album Sheet Music, released in 1974. From there, my hmm, insanity in regards to the band kind of spread. I did not know 10CC at this time. It was a few years later that I heard them on the radio. This was one of their moments that they had. Um, The next one that really went through for them, and we talked about it when we had them uh, on the podcast, Kevin Godley told us about a lot of this stuff and about the superstardom that they enjoyed with the original soundtrack album, including I'm Not In Love, which is when everybody got to know 10CC. That is true. That's definitely the time that I became aware of them. Whatever I heard on the radio, that's what I knew of 10CC. An interesting note is that they were at the studio at night, and during the day at the same time was Paul McCartney making an album Pretty neat stuff to be sharing, you know, a studio with a guy who had a huge influence over you. Uh, Paul McCartney will be here during the day. You get the studio at night when they are done. Okay. The Grateful Dead, always busy, had formed their own record company. And in mid-1974, they put out From the Mars Hotel. And you know, Uncle Pierre loves this album. He loves to swirl to this album. It's stupendous. Scarlet Begonias is one that gets played on the radio once in a while. Ship of Fools, another doozy of a song. Hold a doozy? You skipped right over the U.S. Blues. Back to back. Chicken Jack. Son of a gun. Better change your act. I knew you'd get to it. And this is the album that I say really started the Let Phil Sing movement, okay? He had not one, but two songs on the album. And as he built a repertoire, that movement built and built. You'd see signs at dead shows and stuff. Also, an art note, the real Mars Hotel was a derelict flop house in San Francisco that had been frequented and, I guess they lived in for a while, by Jack Kerouac and others and was a location for David Bowie's promotional film for the Gene Genie song. Hmm. And apparently it was demolished, and that's the end of that. It's good they put it on a cover, don't you think? Definitely. You know, we don't talk much about how jazz and rock cross streams, but in 1974 there was a lot more of that going on, including Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson's collaboration, Winter in America, and a song that got played on all kinds of radio stations, The Bottle. I heard The Bottle for the first time getting ready for this show, and now I have to learn a lot more about Gil Scott Heron. That dude is incredible. This is going to be fun, folks. Oh, yeah. We have to dig into his music. He is exceptional. But next on this funky list is an album called Up for the Downstroke.
the American funk band Parliament. It was their second album. Again, otherworldly. As we know, everything uh, George Clinton is associated with is from outer space. Up for the Downstroke, a great song. The Goose, Testify. I mean, you have presence of a brain. All your goodies are gone. Just such a fun, funky album. And putting it all together with George, you got Bernie Worrell and Eddie Hazel, Bootsy Collins, you know, the core of Parliament. Hell of a crew, man. Hell of a crew. Speaking of which, Eric Clapton assembled a hell of a crew at that famous address, 461 Ocean Boulevard down there in Miami. What an album. It builds off his solo debut, introduces the wider rock and roll world to the music of Bob Marley with I Shot the Sheriff. but also lays down songs like Motherless Children, Willie and the Hand Jive, Let It Grow, and Mainline Florida, man. I remember hearing I Shot the Sheriff, then soon after hearing Bob Marley's version, and I can't remember which one I liked better at the time. Now I think I'm more into the reggae vibe, but boy, Eric Clapton's version of I Shot the Sheriff is fantastic, and this album is really solid. He does a cover of Robert Johnson's Steady Rollin' Man. You hear and feel his blues roots. An excellent album if you're not that into uh, Eric Clapton or you're not that familiar with Eric Clapton and one you should check out. I would underline Marcus's endorsement. 1974 is the year that Kansas debuts with their self-titled album, A Great One Too. Now, I had to remind myself that they were on Kirshner Records, same as the Archies, right? Mm-hmm. But you, you got to remind yourself. <laughs> so when they find a producer named Wally Gold from Teaneck, New Jersey, you're like, what? And you realize it's because they're with Kirshner. All I'll say is that debut album may not have had the biggest hits in the world, but what it did was set the template for what they would be and still are today, all through the decades. And can I tell you, that first song, fucking classic Kansas. You know, I was lucky to have friends who had older brothers, just like you did in high school. And sometimes they would turn us on to really cool bands that they already knew about, like Steely Dan or Little Feet. And right there in 74, Feet's Don't Fail Me Now drops. And the rock and roll doctor, oh, how do you not love that song? Oh, Atlanta, Spanish Moon, and Feet's Don't Fail Me Now, ladies and gentlemen. Well, we mentioned Minnie Ripperton earlier. She was on Stevie Wonder's Fulfilling This First Finale album, and her album Perfect Angel dropped in 1974, and that included one of her biggest hit songs, Loving You. Number one on the pop chart. Number one on the R&B chart. 
Manny Ripperton. If somebody out there listening is thinking, well, I don't know that song. If you hear that song, you're going to know that song. If you're in the uh, 35, 40 plus demo, because you will have probably heard it at some point on the radio. Dude, can I talk to you about the Doobie Brothers? Yes. Can I talk to you about what were once vices or now habits? Sure. Do you remember that album when it came out? Oh, yeah. Blackwater was on every radio station as part of the soundtrack of the whole year. But other songs too, another park, another Sunday, which I think was really the first single and they were still a singles band, even though they were selling tons of albums, mm -hmm. um, they really became an album band, but they got themselves on the radio. I remember the Doobie brothers on the radio, Blackwater, one of the many songs that I've heard thousands of times and still will sing along to it every single time it comes on the radio. Not Fragile was the third album from Bachman Turner Overdrive out in August of 74, and it kept their roll rocking with Not Fragile and roll on down the highway and their biggest song maybe ever. You ain't seen nothing yet. That song still brings back childhood memories. I love that song. Oh, by the way, You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, number one in the U.S. and in Canada. One of your favorite albums and one of mine out of 74 is El Dorado from ELO. The intro kind of sets the mood for when they bring in Can't Get It Out of My Head. I still love how Can't Get It Out of My Head rolls right into Boy Blue, another one of my favorite songs from that album. And the El Dorado, El Dorado finale at the end, just beautiful. And the way he ties classical music into the rock and roll family is so impressive. Really built off their original intentions as a band, I think. Jackson Brown, late for the Skylands in 74. He's become kind of like the hero of the whole folk rock movement. And his urban legend grows courtesy of Warren Zevon. Two amazing songs, Fountain of Sorrow and Late for the Sky, the title track, with a whole bunch of great players behind Jackson Brown. And in 1974, the last album of King Crimson for a while as they would break up after the release of Red. You have the title track. You also have Starless. You have One More Red Nightmare in there. Fallen Angel. True to Robert Fripp. A different direction than the previous record. We talked to David Cross and that conversation will come up. He's on a couple tracks there, but he pointed out this is where they really went to the trio. And also with some credit on this album, Ian McDonald, who was on the first album and then left. John Lennon releases Walls and Bridges, which includes his duet with Elton John, Whatever Gets You Through the Night. Whatever Gets You Through the Night. At about this time, one of my older cousins from Brooklyn, New York, turned me on to a guy named Billy Joel. And The Entertainer was one of the very first songs I heard by him. I am the entertainer, and I know just where I stand. Another serenader, and another long-haired band. Today I am your champion, I may have won your hearts. But I know the game, you forget my name And I won't be here in another year If I don't stay on the charts I think it was the first song that got him on the top 40 at large, right? I don't know. I was young. I just remember my cousin being excited about Billy Joel and 
I think she had a cassette of it and played it for us when she came out to visit or we were out there visiting her. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. Didn't know much about it, but I was pretty impressed. And then in the upcoming years, Billy Joel's career really, really, really took off. Jethro Tull had established themselves by 1974. They released the War Child album, AOR, like uh, the underground AOR stations. Marcus loved them with uh, the big hit Bungle in the Jungle and the song Skating Away on the Thin Ice of a New Day. Bungle in the Jungle is the song that turned me on to Jethro Tull and still one of my favorite songs that brings me back to my childhood to this day. Walking through forests of palm tree parts, let's scoff at the monkeys who live in that dark tent. Down by the water hole, drunk every Friday, eating their nuts, saving their raisins for Sunday. Lions and tigers who wait in the shadows, they're fast but they're lazy and sleeping It's only rock and roll, but the Stones like to record it and put it out anyway. And that's what they did in 1974. That album chock filled with so many great songs. Another great one from the Stones. During that time, a lot of the prog dudes were starting to do some solo albums. Peter Gabriel leaving Genesis, King Crimson disbanding Brian Eno, Robert Fripp, all having very... um, different interests in music and so Brian Eno pops out this really cool solo record called Here Come the Warm Jets. Because of his connections, people like John Wetton and Robert Fripp all play on the album. Simon King is on there. Bill Manzanera plays some guitar. So it's a pretty impressive group of musicians and an interesting album from Eno to tell you how many different parts of rock music were happening at the same time. We're talking about Eno, right? Mm-hmm. And then the beginning of the Mark III era of Deep Purple with Burn, where Coverdale and Hughes come in. Glenn Hughes originally thought he was being hired as a vocalist because he's a hell of a singer. And then they hired Coverdale and brought him in and moved Hughes to the bass and vocals. And then, get ready, it's a geek alert, Marcus. My first Yes concert on the tour for Relayer tour of course bled into 1975 even though this album was put out in 1974 the start of the patrick moraz era with him moving in on keyboards oh the gates of delirium were wide open was there a noticeable difference in the change in their sound with this album to you as a new listener no but there was i didn't discern it so much at first It was the first time I saw him live. I was just so thrilled to be there, you know, what, 30, 40 yards away. And our final entry, but Kraftwerk's Autobahn became a hit. They edited this whole thing and condensed it down. They took parts of it and in different parts of the world, the single sounded different, right? They had an American version, a Canadian version. Everybody had, every territory had their own version because it's a massive piece of work. Massive. You know, in the old days of vinyl, when you only could put so much on one side, it filled the whole side of 2242. It's 22 minutes, 42 seconds, one song. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Rolf and Florian. That was really the beginning of them becoming a mainstream sensation and building their brand to become Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, which took a long time, by the way. Too long. Absolutely. And sadly, we lost Florian in 2020 not too long ago. This album is legendary in the music world, sampled so much, and oh yeah, just give it a listen. It'll change how you think about music. It's one of those albums that will change how you perceive or how you view music. You know that strong gummy that your Nana gave you two weeks ago at the holiday dinner? Eat that and put on Kraftwerk Autobahn with the big speakers. Come on, Nanas, don't do that. Nobody, the Nanas you're hanging around with these days, pal. (laughs) 
Oh, man. Ah, so much great music. And I just love that we can ride on the Autobahn. Uh, And I want to thank again uh, S. Flanagan at grunge.com for kind of uh, getting us on the right path here by uh, posting uh, pretty early on so we could use that as a base. uh, Their article about uh, the album's turning 50 this year, but it's always fun to explore music and all kinds of music. You really get a a cross-section of what it was like to listen to music in 1974, pre-disco. <laughs> you and your love for disco. Ah, yes. You know, partially because of you and partially because of this podcast, I have kind of like softened up a bit about my disdain, my very heavy disdain for the music of the disco variety. I really have. Well, I'm glad you've lightened up about it. So thank you for that. You and you and oh, well, you and John Travolta in that fucking commercial. Ario, get it right, dude. <laughs> oh, so funny. Anyway, so I was uh, getting my my driver's license and trying to get dates. And I think in 1974 they made the car that would be known as Molly in our house. Uh, my dad, once he got, I think, the three drivers, he realized he needed another car, and got a cherry 74 malibu with low mileage that could really clock one of my favorite things that came from 1974 i don't remember my favorite thing from 1974 except for lots of music and being an irresponsible kid well that's what you're supposed to be damn it people forget that sometimes and we're still irresponsible kids here on this podcast as we approach by the way uh as we approach our fifth year doing this silly podcast about music that we love and are opinionated about mostly love because the exploration that we've been on has taken us to places, not only that we wanted to know more about, but the places that we didn't even expect to come across. And that's been part of it for me. Tell us what's been part of it for you by sending us an email to imbalanced history. That's imbalanced with an I history at gmail.com. Hit us up on all the social platforms. Just go to your little search circle and type in Imbalance History. It'll take you to our account, wherever that is. Check in, be heard, and uh, you know, be part of the feedback that we get about so many things, especially about these things. If we left something out of 1974, by all means, add to it in one of those places because we'll be posting this everywhere we can, right? And we know we missed an album or two because there were so many great albums that year, just like in the last few years that we've covered Celebrations of 50. We're not going to get all the albums. If we did, it would be a six-hour episode. (laughs) No, don't do it. Do Do not not torture torture like that. that. Hey, I want to congratulate our friends at Crooked Eye Brewery, our sponsor, and uh, thank them for their continued support here on The Imbalance History February 10th, Saturday night, the Crooked Eye Band. It is their big party to celebrate 10 years right there on Montgomery, right near York Road in Hapro. You'll you'll hear the noise, and that'll be us. And we're going to be there uh, recording stuff for a special episode of the podcast to celebrate their 10th and our 5th, a 5 and 10 episode uh, of the podcast live at Crooked Eye. Kind of live, right? It'll be taped like it's live. But it'll be a lot of fun, and we hope to see you there to celebrate with the gang. And until the next time that we get together here, courtesy of Dark Doc Media, I'm Ray Koob. I'm Marcus Goldman. This has been Albums Turning 50 in 2024 on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott.
Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Points.